1: Um, hope everybody had an awesome week, and those of you who are working on your quantum bang, I hope it's going very, very well. I'm still very, very excited about my own quantum bang. Um,
0: <clears throat>
1: let me get my calendar out. Shit, son of a bitch. I dropped my orange. Oh, God. This does not bode well for the podcast. Just letting you know. Shit got real in the beginning. Okay, so we had a check-in on February 1st for the Quantum Bang, and they also started sign-ups for the Every Fandom Bang, you guys. Um, and Let's see. Let's remember we have Evil Author Day in February on the 15th. And we uh, wait, okay, no, I need to back up. I'm sorry. I'm fucking you guys up. Okay. February first is wit our next quantum bang check in. And that's also the first day of sign ups for the every fandom bang on the see if this is a problem. Uh you know the calendar I built for you guys. Um it, I had to make the writing tiny, right? Because there wasn't a whole lot of room in the box. Well, I can't see for shit. Okay. So, the Quantum Bank Artist um, Sign-Ups close on the 28th of February. So, you guys keep that in mind as you're meandering through the end of this month. And also keep in mind that Evil Author Day takes place on International Fan Works Day, which is February 15th. Um, <clears throat> we had a huge influx of members coming into the writers' table because, <clears throat> because I posted a link in um one of the shipping groups i belong to called harmony and company um <clears throat> so that's if you hadn't noticed that um notification that i put out about that that's why we had all those welcome posts because we had a whole bunch of people join like i don't know 10 or 15 people um <clears throat> so if you guys are tuning into the podcast for the first time welcome to my extremely unprofessional podcast where i talk a lot of shit and say a lot of bad words and it's always where you are. I don't have a cold. I'm, I'm not sound a little stuffed up. It's allergies. So hopefully there will be no coughing. We don't want to repeat of that year, do we? No, we don't. <clears throat> Anyways, um, the first question comes from Ellie, and she put it in the writer's table thread that I, that I made for um, this podcast. Um, <clears throat> and she says, it's a world-building question, How in depth do you go when you're building your world's history and at what point do you make these decisions? For instance, in Ties at Bind, Karen mentioned that in her U.S. there would not have been a civil war over slavery. Was this something that you decided in the beginning or did it develop in the story since submissive slavery is mentioned? Or in Jilly's Vicious, there's a discussion of the history of spirits and guides. Is it purely based on the needs of the story or is it a worthwhile is it or is it worthwhile to explore even if it isn't mentioned in your story specifically. Now <clears throat> I am a firm believer in world building and one of the things I'm working on this year actually is my world building skills. I feel like I do a very good job of it already, but it's always important to keep working on the skills that you do well as well as the skills that you want to develop. So you never stop learning because learning is super important. Gotta keep that brain moving. I don't ever there I really you know I just don't want to be that person who stops learning ever so I'm always exploring my craft and figuring things out and trying to hone and work on um that now when it comes to ties that bind which is my BDSM universe um that was inspired by Zant's BDSM universe um society as a whole uh and And the history that would have developed around pleasure houses and uh dynamic you know going going all the way back to the cave because it's part of the human condition um <clears throat> in that world and it when you put something so fundamental into the base of your world building, it has to ripple out. It has to have huge ripples. It would be like, you know, um, what do you call it? What are those, is that magical realism? um, Or worlds where magic is ingrained in society and it's not a secret. uh, Like uh, that uh, movie that that was on Netflix, Bright. Um, When you have fantasy elements that are um, deep, into the foundation of your world. Those elements have to influence and change the events in your history. Now, whether or not you ever mention those or not is, is not an issue. Um, it's about what, learning and knowing your own environment. And the more you know about your world, the better your story will be. It's just like with your characters. The more you know about your character, even if the reader never quite gets those details, um, it's important for you to know those details. Um, Who was your your lead character's first sexual partner? Um, What brand of tea do they like to drink? Uh, What's their favorite dessert? Uh, You know, Do they prefer flannel over cotton when it comes to pajamas? These are the kinds of things that you should know about your character, even if they never show up in the narrative. Because the more you know about your character, the more you know about your world, the the reality that you create for your reader will be richer. As to how deep you should go, It depends on your personality because I have several friends that I would cut off and have an intervention if they go too deep into their world building because they'll spend 10 years there. And you can't spend 10 years world building. That's ridiculous. So (laughs) if you feel like you might drop down a rabbit hole and be munching on some biscuits with Alice, you you might reconsider – the amount of time you give to world building. I, I once attended a seminar online where um, they, uh, the, the person writing the seminar did a um, plotting a book in a month. And she gave us a certain amount of time to do certain things. Like we had to do our character profiles on day one. We had to do, and we had to be finished by day three. We, uh, for our main characters, We had four or five days of world building, and then we had like six days of research. And then the rest of the month was dedicated to plotting our novel, of which we plotted in 30 days. And our goal was to plot a 100K novel. If that's something you guys would like to do, um, let me know, and I'll see if I can find my notes or or contact the person who did it and see if she'll give me the notes. Um, I do know her. (laughs) So it might be possible. And we can do it in the writer's table where we just put out a schedule for putting a book together um, on that process. Uh, Or, you know, I could probably build one on my own just based on my own process. But I would never want you to be a slave to a process that anybody gives you, whether it's mine or anybody else's, because it's important. When you're looking at different people's processes to pick up what works for you, you might not need three or four days to do uh, world building, to think about timelines and um, historical events that might impact your characters. And in some cases, you don't need that much. Because, like, if you're writing a, a contemporary romance, you don't need a lot of world building. You're gonna you're gonna put your characters down in an environment very similar to your own, or the same technology, and the, you know, so you're not gonna need a whole lot of world building. But if you're building a fantasy novel, um, if you're uh, building, um, a, you know, a, a time travel story or a paranormal world where werewolves are known, or there's vampires or whatever going on, you're gonna need more world building than you would if you were writing a contemporary story whether it be a suspense or i think with a suspense you actually need a little bit more time world building than you did with a regular romance because you got to build in the suspense the suspense elements and figure out your organizations is your character going to be in law enforcement or are they going to be private you know um detective or wherever they're going to be um so there could be some more world building and character building there than there would be in a contemporary but <clears throat> When you're looking at science fiction and um fantasy in particular, there's a lot of building to do. I mean, you look at the um you look at the scope of Lord of the Rings. That's that's ginormous. I mean, he created whole races, he created languages, he um he created geography, he 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 mapped the world, he he created multiple races of different kinds of people, um both good and bad. He created a history um of of the races and their origin. I mean, just, you know, honestly, the the scope of the world building that that Tolkien did um is overwhelming. Then you look at the world building that took place in something like Babylon 5. Um Babylon 5 has a rich, beautiful history that folds out underneath the plot. Um in a way that you know, just really kind of just blows your mind. And if you've not watched Babylon 5, it's available on Amazon Prime. I highly recommend that you do it. Just you know, sign up for a month or sign up for the free trial and binge watch the hell out of Babylon 5. I highly recommend it. Um, for the storytelling. Um because it it tells you a beautiful story with a well, lots of really engaging characters, and the world building um underneath it all is is stunning so I guess the answer to answer the question is is when it comes to your world building, it greatly depends on how much um your world impacts your story. Because in a contemporary uh, setting, um, even like a YA where a contemporary, you know, the kids going to high school, you don't need as much world building as you would if your character is on a quest to kill a monster or um, if your character is something like Harry Potter or if your character is Frodo. Um, you know, it's just it just really depends, which is kind of a terrible answer to give, but that's the only answer is that it really depends on what you're writing and what you want to accomplish. So I hope that helps. (coughs) Sorry. I thought I wasn't going to cough, and then I did it. But yeah, Tolkien did write entire languages for Lord of the Rings. Um, And uh, I think he actually was a linguist by career, right? at at one point but he did write entire languages for um Lord of the Rings and he wrote expansive timelines and uh histories for each race and the origins and mythology and and each race had individual mythologies. So when I mean, you look at that and it's just like okay they're not even sharing the same mythology. They're all, they're, they're just, it's just it's stunning. It's it's very it's very interesting and and um beautiful and just it's great. It's just, but that kind of world building in today's modern fiction market is practically, unless you're George R, R. Martin, um, <laughs> kind of extinct, you know, because the thing, if you look at, I've never actually um, um, read or watched Game of Thrones because it's too rapey, but uh, if you look at it, the scope of because um, uh, the, the Game of Thrones, that kind of world building has to be there in the, in the very beginning. I think um, when it comes to your outline process and your initial um, brainstorming with your world, that um, for me, it always starts with a question. What if, what if this happens? How would this character respond? And depending on how I let my mind wander on that response during my cloud plotting brainstorming session, will depend on how much research I need to do or how much world building I need to do. And like when I was doing Drunk Lowell um, and my question was, is what would it take um, for Harry to sacrifice somebody else to go back in time? Um, What would he do to save Hermione's life? Um, And then it became, what would he and Draco do? And then it kind of blew up from there. And i all add like a ridiculous um, cloud plotting thing going on Um, with a whole bunch of circles and lines. And, you know, it was terrible. But then I had to think about how they would do it. And I wanted something a little bit more, I want something different than what I had done in the past with that. And I wanted it to be kind of elaborate. And I wanted there to be a, um, I wanted, you know, sometimes when it comes to writing time travel in Harry Potter, uh, there's this, this element of uh, desperation. And I didn't want them to be desperate. I wanted them to be deliberate and furious. And, you know, so the ritual that I came up with to send them back in time was the first thing I built. Um, in my world building. Um, and then, you know, when I decided that I was going to merge them with the Deathly Hallows, uh, that changed the whole scope of the project. And that happened early on, thankfully, in the the brainstorming section of my plot document. So I had a lot of, um, time to think about how I was going to do it and what it was going to be and how it would start and who would be which hallow. Um, But Harry was always going to be the elder one. Uh, He was, that was always going to be what happened. Um, And his desire to separate himself from the older the older one even in the ritual was important for his characterization. So when you're looking at your world building and your outlining, you have to think about your characterization too, because they're all connected. You know, you don't want to put things in your world building that um create situations um that damage your characterization. And this is actually something that Julie and I have talked about before when it comes to um, ramifications and the choices you make in your plot, you can turn your character into a super terrible asshole and not even mean to. When you had your character do something completely off the wall, um, like, I've seen NCIS six where Tony just casually commits treason um, by releasing uh, uh, data that is uh uh secret top secret uh what you call it um i forget i forget the other word it's just gone out of my head help me out chat room help me out um classified it it, it was just gone okay so he releases classified data he is immediately (laughs) guilty of treason and it, it never gets addressed in the narrative He's ruined his career. Um, it never gets addressed. It's just, if, if, uh, so those kinds of things, when you are looking at building your world, you want to account for. I think that one of the things that happens in Harry Potter fic is that moment, and it comes up almost in every fic, in- including my own where Sirius has to justify himself to Harry for leaving that night, for leaving him with Hagrid and going to search for Peter Pettigrew instead of doing his job as a godfather. And he has to, and writers over and over and over and over again, justify this or not um, depending on what they want to do with Sirius as a character Um uh, you know whether it was grief or he 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 didn't intend for it to be um forever or if he didn't want to hurt Hagrid or if Dumbledore manipulated them both or whatever there's there's always a moment where that has to be addressed in fan fiction because that moment in canon um paints serious and terrible light and if we want to do something good with the character, we have to redeem that moment for him we have to make it um in in a way to to make it work for our story. So when you're looking at this guy goes goes into another question that I have in the um in the group about changing character back, backgrounds and demonstrating those changes. Um from Kyla and Kyla asked uh, uh, Josh, I'm gonna come back to your question because it's um a little different from these two so it it works better this way. Um <clears throat> When you're changing events in a character's backstory and you want to make subtle changes in their character as a sort of ripple effect, because of those changes, how do you decide when and where to show those subtle changes without being so blatant that the changes are confusing or without giving unnecessary info? Because you don't want an info dump. I get it. Um, What's the best way to provide information slowly over the course of the story that gives the reader information they need or want? I, you know... Actions speak louder than words. Uh, if you take for let's go back to the Harry Potter thing, and we, we've discussed this before in a, a lot, how it's kind of galling to see Harry, who's uh, see a version of Harry who's been raised in a good environment with a good home, um, who has very supportive uh, adults in his life, still going through the motions of the first book, action for action. It makes no sense. If Harry has an awesome set of parental figures at home, no matter who they may be, when he <laughs> – I don't <laughs> – I don't know why. You know, and it actually is pretty telling that neither – that none of those kids wrote to their parents and said, hey, um, there's a three-headed dog. There's a Cerberus. There's a hellhound on the third floor of Hogwarts. Um, Is he supposed to be here? There was a troll. Did you, did you hear about the troll? Did the, did the headmaster send you guys a note about the troll? Because there was a troll. And he almost killed Harry Potter. Did you guys know about that? I mean, how can there not be hundreds of letters leaving Hogwarts every fucking day the first year? Potter runs around in rags. He seems to be kind of underweight. I don't think he's having a good uh experience. Um, mom a troll almost killed Harry Potter. I mean these these things are just stunning that nobody uh it just it doesn't come up. But if Harry is raised in a um a good home with great parents, I think one of the ways that you can adjust his character is to have him reach out to his parents when stupid things happen. Like you know, the troll, the dragon being told to do um, detention in the Forbidden Forest. (laughs) You know, shit like that. Seeing a unicorn murdered, that might have come up in a letter. You know, just things like that. So what you can do to demonstrate your character's changes, especially in... This is a really fandom-central question, um, is to gradually move them away from the events in canon that don't make sense for their changes, so um, the, Harry would definitely be writing home to, to his to his mom or his dad or who's ever taken care of him and say, hey, you know, <laughs> shit got real and <laughs> I'm not sure I want to be here. There was a troll, you know. <clears throat> okay, Kyle says, what about a scenario using Harry as an example? He was still raised in the Dursleys so, he still, Dursleys, so he still had to deal with that negative home life. But maybe he also had some other sort of support outside of home. Maybe a friend or something that the Dursleys or Dumbledore didn't know about and had some kind of communication so that he did a different kind of security in understanding himself and his insecurities might be different. I think if you give Harry somebody he can depend on before he ever gets to Hogwarts, The kid that goes and gets on the train isn't going to be um, so easily manipulated into a friendship with Ron Weasley to start. Um, This is a kid who's going to be asking questions. Uh, This is a kid who uh, might be a little more studious might be more um, interested in learning magic to defend himself if he's been told that there's a problem, um, uh, that, he, that he needs to be stronger, that he needs to take care of himself, uh, that there are people in the magical world that he can't trust. Uh, so it it would impact his decisions and his actions. And that's the way you demonstrate that when you change their background in that will he actually make friends with Ron? Would he be sorted into Gryffindor? Would he be more inclined to make friends with Neville instead, um, or if the person in question is female, might he be more inclined to be friendly with Hermione, um, as if he sees females as a source of comfort? Despite his aunt, um, he might be more inclined to confide in Professor. Um, McGonagall if he's got a strong female influence outside of his aunt. So when you're thinking about the changes that you do in your character, you um, look at the ramifications of those changes and then pick out ways to highlight the changes for good and bad. Might Harry be quicker to be angry at somebody who's a bully if he's had somebody in his elementary school uh, stand up for him? And so he didn't get bullied at school by Dudley. Might he be more inclined to pay attention in his classes and get good grades if there is somebody in his life who's interested in seeing those grades who would be disappointed Or very happy for him if the grades were good. If he has somebody he's responsible to in a way that he's not when it comes to um, his aunt and uncle. Um, I have a plot idea where, um, yeah, if he had a trusted teacher at school, um, wouldn't he be more inclined to find a teacher at Hogwarts that he could trust? Wouldn't he seek somebody out? And, you know, honestly, if, if you take that Harry Potter who had a trusted teacher at school who comes into Hogwarts, I think he would actually shy away from Gryffindor. Um, I think that Harry's a Hufflepuff. He's loyal. He's hardworking. He'd be nurtured in Hufflepuff. No, Ravenclaw's kind of cutthroat. I mean, you know, I've got him in Ravenclaw in a story that I'm writing. Um, And I don't know. I think that I'd probably put him in Hufflepuff if he was coming into an environment where he had a teacher that took really good care of him. I think Sprout's a very nurturing um, influence. And I think that would be actually beneficial to Harry if he had a head of house who was nurturing. And because McGonagall is kind of, she's very strict and she's very stern and, um, as much as I enjoy Flipwick as a character, he's kind of oblivious to the fact that his house is full of bullies. So, I think that Harry would have shot away from them all. I think that he probably would have ended up with Neville. Um, in the on the train, and him and Neville both would have ended up in Hufflepuff. <laughs> As a result, you know. But so, um, I, you gotta pick and choose. Your moments when it comes to your characters and um, changing your plots and changing, but really focus on your actions because actions do speak louder than words and how they respond to events that take place in canon would have to change. That's just my personal opinion. So Joss asks, how do you choose which background pairings to use in a particular story? And have you ever had a reader become very upset at such a pairing? And if so, how did you handle it? Um, Background pairings. I have a lot of pairings. that I just stick together because, Um, and um, just either, you know, okay, I'll just stick these two together. In Sentinels of Atlantis, there were so many pairings. I was just like, okay, yeah, I'll stick them. And I got, actually, I got grief in the Sentinels of Atlantis pairing of Carter and Jackson. Um, people were pissed that I put Carter and Jackson together. Um, there were the shippers who wanted Carter to be with O'Neill, And then there were the shippers who wanted Daniel to be with O'Neal. <laughs> And then they got even more bent with me when I put O'Neal with Patrick Shepard. They were like, oh, God, oh, God, what am I going to do? Um, so, yeah, I mean, there were those, but I ignored them. And I thought that's what you should do, too. I, I think that um, uh, background pairings, if they uh, if they don't serve a purpose, don't worry about them. Just l- l- let it come naturally when you're writing. And if it doesn't, they don't get a pairing. Um, but if their pairing is important to your plot, um go with what works with your plot and ignore the rest because you're the one that has to write it and <clears throat> to uh, enjoy yourself as a writer and if you're not enjoying a pairing. Um, even if it's a background pairing, then don't force yourself to write it just to make somebody else happy because that's just bullshit. Have you started a pairing for plot and just not felt the chemistry? No, not personally, because I tend to plot around my pairing. (laughs) Being a romance writer, my first, um, one of my first steps in the plot process is to pick up my pairing. And I always, um, I plot for pairing instead of pairing for plot. Make sense? (laughs) Do you have advice on building a triad? Um, I think that when you're picking out characters to put in a menage that you need to account for um, chemistry across all three people. But you should also um, look at their individual dynamics to see, to, to make sure that they work um, as pairs and as a triad. Um in the relationship because otherwise it's it's going to feel um, off kilter and unfair and weird and um, you won't get uh, the synergy that you need to build a triad. Uh, so so it ha- it, you have to merge the personalities in a way and make sure they all fit. So that, you know, I can, I can darkly lull that it was Draco and Hermione, Hermione and Harry, Harry and Draco, Harry and Hermione. A and C has dated B, but A and C haven't dated yet. I think that in order for that to work, that A and C have to build a relationship with each other as well as what's happening with the triad. Um, There's a scene in my rerun of Un- Unseekable Plot where Draco is talking to Hermione and he tells her, he said, I don't want to depend on Harry to tell me how you feel or if you need help or support. So I need to know you the way he does. I need to know, um, basically he needs to know, you know, uh, what makes her sad, what makes her happy. Um and these are the kinds of things that Harry already knows whether so they they've been friends for decades. She's gonna be in a relationship with both of them, then he has to know her as well as Harry does. As well as he knows Harry, being his partner at work. There so there's it's about um equality. And and the equality isn't about how much time you spend with one person over the other. It's about emotional depth and knowledge and um, emotional intelligence of your characters and creating a situation where they have a lot of trust. There must be a lot of trust in a triad relationship because you... um, you don't want to create a situation where you're breeding insecurity, which can lead to jealousy, which can lead to anger and, um, you know, inappropriate reactions um, to to situations. And um, so that, that's the last thing you want. So open communication and a lot of emotional um, bloodletting is required <laughs> when it comes to a triad relationship and creating one, at least for me in fiction. I don't have the personality to do that in reality. But writing it was fun. Okay, I've got another question here. Let's see. Um, Okay. How much difference would the same type of situation an outside support structure affect Tony DeNozzo if he had an outside st- structure of support besides senior. <coughs> <coughs> Have you read... <coughs> <coughs> Have you read Jilly's story um, for you? Um, you should read it. It's it's Tony in an OC. And basically, this is a Tony who on the day... Um, his fiance left him at the altar. Instead of ending up in Gibbs's guest room, he reaches out for support to his family because he got some advice from somebody. Um, his mother's side of the family. And that created a situation where he didn't fall into that really unhealthy dynamic with Gibbs. That he had family he could depend on. And I think that if you give Tony Zenozo a a foundation that that doesn't include seniors um greed and disloyalty, that you have a Tony who doesn't make situations uh situational uh decisions that are bad for him. That he has somebody he can reach out to and say hey this is going on I need some help I need an outside perspective um and that comes with having somebody you can trust Uh, whether it's a parental figure or whether it was um partner or uh, a a sibling-like relationship that he has with somebody or um There was this. There's a. There, there, there's a short on rough trade in the forum where Tony ends up talking to. um, I forget his name, the profiler on Criminal Minds that's played by Joe Montana, Joe Martania. I don't know how to say his name. Rossi. Yes, thank you. He's in a cemetery and talking to Rossi and Rossi gives him a very valuable perspective um, and basically tells him that he needs to run for his life because Ziva's going to kill him. <laughs> and so I think if you put somebody like that into his space that he could depend on and that he could um, that uh, that it would change his character for for the better and that he would make healthier decisions for himself and he wouldn't um, end up in the situations that he ends up in. Um, So if you look at that and you take apart his bad decisions in canon and stick in that influence, you're going to get a different response. Or you should get a different response. Because it is really annoying to see to see someone like Tony Dinozo being given this awesome structure outside of NCIS. And then the plot continues to plot along the same fucking path over and over and over again. You're thinking, why the hell do you have this awesome structure this awesome support? Um, and you're still making these stupid bad decisions. What is that? Get a psychiatrist. <laughs> See a therapist. (laughs) And so when you change your character's circumstances, your character's actions must be impacted. Otherwise, um, they're a static person and nobody's static. We are a summary, a summation of our experiences and our responses to those experiences. And so he's having all these experiences, but he's not responding and changing to them. That's weird. That's not human. That's not how we work as a a species. But Gibbs is stuck. Gibbs is stuck in that moment he was told that his wife and daughter were dead. He will always be in that moment. He's stuck in that moment. That's not an excuse. It's the reason. So it's not an excuse for his terrible behavior, but it is the reason he is the way he is. Um, Jay says, like Batman is forever that boy staring at his parents' bodies. Absolutely. He's stuck in in that moment forever. But, um, background pairings. I think that, uh, like I said, if your pairing is um, not serving your plot, I question whether or not you need it. Um, if it's just for your own amusement, then make yourself happy, and don't worry about what anybody else has to say about it. I lost my studio. Where is my studio? There's my studio. <clears throat> That was on JAG. The backdoor pilot for NCIS was JAG episodes. Um, And I think that uh, they pretty much jumped the shark with the first episode of NCIS. (laughs) I mean, isn't that the episode where Tony gets tossed out of a moving vehicle in a body bag by the FBI? Hello? Hello? Why isn't everybody in jail? From that moment on, why isn't this like the first edition of The Orange is New Black? I'm just saying because um, all those FBI agent guys should have been arrested for attempted murder, at the very least, of a federal agent. Um, So, yeah. Very bad writing. but uh so yeah that's all the questions that i that i had on the thread so if there are any questions you guys have in the chat room that you would like to me to bestow my questionable wisdom wisdom on you let me know we are It really depends on the show (laughs) how the FBI is going to get treated. (laughs) But again, that's all about, that is all about plot service Um, uh, and uh, shaping characters uh, to to fit your narrative. And, you know, it's, it's about point of view. Because um, to Tom Riddle of um, Harry, um, Harry Potter is the bad guy. And to the Wicked Witch of the West, Dorothy is a thief and a murderer.
2: <laughs>
1: yeah, why were the CSIs on CSI um, acting like cops? With guns and badges and shit. Were they cops? Were they super special cops? I don't know. Who cared? (laughs) Drama. (laughs) You're right. That's that's definitely drama. Well, you know, if you think about it, why the hell was an anthropologist the, the partner of an FBI agent? I mean, don't get me wrong. Bones amused the shit out of me but seriously seriously well I- interesting about Brennan's martial arts training is that she got all the physical training, but apparently none of the mental. Because most people who have a a lot of martial arts training are are a lot more um, mindful and peaceful. There's a there's a there's more to martial arts than just the physical form, right? And so how she get all the physical and none of the mental? I mean, I'm just asking. I'm I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> just, we're just asking. Yeah, there were a lot of dead petty officers on NCIS. Yeah, none of us wanna to go to Rock Creek Park. It's just not a good idea. The Navy might not have issued red shirts, but it was implied. I would have busted my ass to get out of the petty officer rank if I was an NCIS. <laughs> like, I can't be a petty officer for very much longer, I'm gonna die. So what do I do to get a promotion? <laughs> to get several promotions. <laughs> <laughs> I think that what we learned from Criminal Minds and NCIS is that it's just, or in Bones, it's just not a good idea to be in a national park <laughs> by yourself without a weapon. <laughs> Not a good idea. Just not good. Just ignore. Work out. Because if you're not being, you know, you're gonna be stalked by a serial killer.
2: <laughs> if you're <laughs>
1: <laughs> what I learned from these, story, these shows is that reality has a little to do with storytelling. That's absolutely correct, Ellie, because I think that um, too much reality in your storytelling is boring. We all live in reality. We don't need to read more of it. Uh, that's just like people who watch the news for entertainment. I don't know about these people. I don't know what they do or how they live. or, or it. They concern me a lot um, because there's nothing entertaining about the news at
2: all yeah
1: if you go to a national park and you're like in NCIS or Criminal Minds or JAG or CSI if you go to a national park with or bones you're either going to be a dead body or you're going to find a dead body (laughs) I do like to write escapism. Um, I think that uh, it's just, it's it's more entertaining to escape reality than it is to kind of cram your story into reality. Even with contemporary works, um, there's a uh, there's a veneer or uh, a beauty filter over over the world that we live in when you're reading a romance novel or whew, anything of that nature. <clears throat> we should write like crack stories where people keep finding dead bodies. I'm going to have to... um I know what my theme is going to be for the Drabble next month. I wonder if I can find a body bag on my program. Crime scene tape. Dead body. A hundred ways to find a dead body. (laughs) It's all for research. I, you know... The, the human experience is um, very narrow uh, the written word allows us to broaden that experience to such an extent that it's, that it's as big as the universe and I uh, as a writer that's my goal I I want to explore um, all the things that I'll ever be able to explore in person you know I've got an extra body. Is that from one of those body farm books? <laughs> you know, realistically, it's not a good idea to throw a body in the dead in, in in the body farm to hide it because those motherfuckers are serious about their science. They're getting their science on. You can't hide a dead body in the body farm. They got all their dead bodies marked and mapped and they will know. They, they will find it almost immediately. You do not want to dump a dead body in the body farm. Hypothetically speaking as a writer. They're getting their science on over there. They're going to find that body pretty much immediately. And they'll be pissed off at you for fucking up their body farm. Because they'll have to bring in forensics and cops. It's going to mess up their experiments. And really the last thing you want is a bunch of pissed off forensic scientists um, mad at you for fucking up their science. Because they're going to dedicate a whole lot of time to finding you. They'll be volunteering their time to find you. And punish you for fucking up their science. Just saying. I'd be mad. I wouldn't be there, number one, because gross. But (laughs) I'd be mad. (laughs) Don't make a nerd mad. (laughs) It's never a good idea. (laughs) Never make somebody mad who knows more science than you do. You will pay for it. Just terrible, 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 terrible. But there is a thread on the writer's table about body disposal for research purposes. So you guys can check that out, add your thoughts. So let me go back to this question because there was another question. So, if you have um Okay. I'm going to give an example of um say that you're say that let's go with um Let's go with Harry Potter. Okay. Let's say that Harry Potter meets somebody in um in the neighborhood. That becomes kind of a touchstone for him, not really a full-on support system or influence, just somebody that um, that knows him and that doesn't believe the rumors about him, and maybe who sneaks him food sometimes or candy or whatever, or you know, pays him to do little things around the house to, to get pocket money, or or. Helped him get a library card. and It's just somebody he just touches face with. It's a touchstone in his life. Not a real. Um, concrete influence. And not something. Somebody that would get Dumbledore's. Um, attention. And this person. This touchstone. Maybe they are magical. Um, whether. Uh, and they know who Harry is. And eventually they kind of. Clue Harry in on who he is, and but this person remains for Harry and not a genuine uh, influence or somebody who can uh, can change his circumstances for whatever reason because of Dumbledore or whatever. Um, but that maybe the attention of this person doesn't the Dursleys treat Harry better for fear of being um, arrested, right? So, well, this person never really um, is somebody that Harry could turn to for help regarding the situations at Hogwarts. So maybe he wouldn't write them letters about the shit that goes down there. In um, some events in canon would still unfold because this person isn't a, um, a guardian. This person can't affect change in Harry's life. But, he is, but this person is someone that, that Harry has grown to trust. Right. So you could have that kind of situation with your characters, where they have a person in their past or in their present who acts more of a of a just a spot of reality or a spot of comfort without being a huge influence on your plot or your character. So does that answer your question, Kyla, that you asked me in private that I didn't want to say out loud? I hope so. Um, <clears throat> I would all you know, one of my one of my major plot bunnies sitting in the back of my head is that um James Potter is a parcel mouth and that when he dies his familiar um curls up into Harry's blankets and they don't find him. Um and he goes to Privet Drive with with Harry. And he's with Harry the whole time. And he becomes and he bonds with Harry as a baby to protect him. Um I'm not sure what kind of snake he would be. Um, probably elemental because those are in in my in my own head can that I created for elementals. They can be really small or really big depending on the circumstances. Um and very magical, and so it'd be really interesting. Probably fire. Because I like the fire thing. Um, And how would he influence Harry? And the Harry that ends up at Hogwarts. This is something, this is a creature that would not have a great deal of impact on his circumstances as far as guardianship goes or parental figures, but he would be a a, a companion and he would be, um, yeah, he would be, he would be very pragmatic and very um, mercenary. And um, the fact of the matter is, is that Vernon Dursley might not survive it (laughs) because, (laughs) but he would also you know he could teach Harry to be very sly, you know very very critical, very um vicious, and not inclined towards being manipulated, so by the time he gets to Hogwarts Dumbledore's got no clue what to do with this Harry Potter (laughs) who was essentially raised by a snake. (laughs) Oh, it's amusing to think about. Um, Well, I think this is also a Harry... That would get his letter and know what it was and wouldn't let Vernon see it, and that he would respond um, and ask for somebody to uh, to come to Privet Drive to talk to him about magic and take him shopping because he doesn't have you know she has no clue, um, and it wouldn't be Hagrid at that point because um, it wouldn't have had to be a um, a rescue mission. Knight would definitely know Pettigrew on site. Uh, so it's, it's curiosity. Um, but the question becomes, you know, someone said in the chat room that McGonagall didn't want Harry to stay at Privet Drive, um, but then let him stay there anyway. In reality, Minerva McGonagall had no power whatsoever over Harry's circumstances. She could have complained to the DMLE about what happened, you know, the him being there and the muggles. She could have. But that doesn't mean that they would have done anything about it because Dumbledore had all the power in that situation. So much power, in fact, that no one even questioned what happened to their savior in canon. In Canon, we're given the impression that Lily had a that Newt was actually very friendly with Flitwick, but McGonagall's relationship with her house with, with her kids in her house, even in Canon, are she's very stern, she's very strict, she's not very intimately involved with the children that are sorted into her house. Why would it be any different for James and Lou's generation as it was Harry's generation? I don't know that she would have particularly been all that invested in Harry Potter personally in canon. I think it's important because a lot of times we assign relationships and intimacies um and feelings to characters in in fandom that uh get mentally attached to them in their canons in their canon circumstances. So if you look at the actual canon, what is said, and not what you assume to be said. Yeah, he did interact with people in the magical world um, before he got his letter. and They shook his hand and bowed to him and stuff. And yet, not a single one of them told him he was magical. Not a single one of them interfered in what Dumbledore had set up there. They all knew him. He didn't know them. And in canon, I don't think the goblins give a flying fuck about wizards. James and Lily were in the Order of the Phoenix, um, just like just like Alice and Frank were. Uh, but I. I don't know. I think a lot of times in fandom, we assign um, emotional intimacies to relationships um, that just did not exist in canon and then um, try to apply them to canon circumstances. That's true. We don't know what the Potters had. um, All we see is what Harry was left with. Um and there's never really an accounting of how much that is but in one of the books uh Harry talks about buying a broom and that the firebolt would have taken all of almost all of his money that he'd have had practically nothing left if he'd have bought the firebolt So it's important to possible Separate canon and Fannin when you're discussing canon. I mean, we didn't even find out what Harry's grandparents' names were until recently. God help us. Which I refuse to consider canon, just by the way, because that's just Clemont, really. No. No. I refuse. Lamont, For fuck's sake. Anyways. (laughs) No, there were actually no noble titles um, in Harry Potter canon. The only time it comes up is when uh, Sirius sarcastically tells Harry that his mother... uh, Wahlberger was very invested in their um, ancient and noble family. And he was being sarcastic. He wasn't being serious. So they don't actually have titles. That's just one of our favorite tropes. Yeah, right. That That's fanon. But, demand. I'd be very interested in reading a story where Harry becomes the ward of the Queen of England. <laughs> Go forth, young writer. <laughs> and come back with fic.
0: <laughs> I
1: refuse to accept Flemont as a name. Nope, not doing it, Joanne, not doing it. <clears throat> That's just like that time you know they that 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 Marvel thought they killed Phil Coulson. No, <laughs> not <Nah>, dog. <laughs> That's a no from us. That didn't happen. Didn't happen.
0: <laughs> I. I mean,
1: are you serious, Tom Come on now. Come on can't be that's a no for me too (laughs) anyways um but yeah so it's important when you're actually constructing your own work to um recognize fan influence um over your your work in in fandom um not because it's bad, but because I think sometimes we allow fan and influence to kind of, like, trap us and, like, lock us in a box. And um, I don't believe in a box. Uh, kick that box to the corner. Put a lamp on it. Make it useful. Um, I just don't let fanon expectations shape your story is, is what I'm getting at. I'm still kind of stuck on that serious dating princess die thing. I, I don't know if I'm going to get over that anytime soon. Um, <clears throat> um, just, I'm not going to get over that. Stuck on it. I don't, oh God, Claire, I don't, um, <laughs> why couldn't Dumbledore get hit by a bus after he dropped Harry off? That also could be part of your story. See, you've already got two plot points. <laughs> First, Harry is the word of the Queen of England. Second, Dumbledore gets hit by a bus. See, that? that's, that, that's two plot points already. That's practically chapter one written. Good job. I uh <clears throat> I actually read a really uh interesting one where uh Dumbledore uh went to check on Privet Drive before they um took Harry there and Vernon um shot him in the face with a shotgun. He lived, but <laughs> they didn't end up putting Harry there. <laughs> he got a face full of buckshot. Um, it was it was kinda terrible. But uh yeah, he didn't end up putting Harry with the Dursleys as a result. I read a large portion of Harry Crow, but I got um disenchanted with the links. I was like, is, is it going to end soon? Is it, is it going to end? Is, is, is there an ending? Is, is there an ending coming? 354K? Is, is there an ending coming? <laughs> and then I, then I, um, I, uh, <laughs> I stopped reading it. And then it, it got finished. and I, I never went back to read it. So maybe one day. Okay, kind of long. It's like a half a million words. I don't know how many words it ended up being, but it was close to half a million. And I was like, I just, um, and I stopped reading around two hundred k. I was like, I need a, I need an ending. <laughs> I just can't be cock teased like this forever. <laughs> There's a limit on how much cock teasing I will allow. two ships in Harry Potter. Um, that is Harry and Hermione and Harry and Draco. And, of course, you know, Harry, Draco, and Hermione will work as well. I like James and Lily, so yeah, that one works. Um, and I have this thing, and it's ridiculous, but when I first entered um, the Harry Potter fandom, I read the story, and it was Harry Ron, and it's the only one that I've ever read. And it still. Do you ever read something and you're like, I'm ashamed to like this because it's Harry and Ron and I hate Ron. I hate Ron. The writing isn't. It isn't the author's fault. I hate Ron. I'm ashamed of liking this because I hate Ron. Anyways, it's called Sympathetic Magic and I read it once a year. I can't get past the first chapter and you're my density. I'm sure it's great. I just can't get past it. Yeah, Harry Crow ended at seven hundred and thirty-seven thousand words. So I've got like five hundred thousand wor- words of fic to read there that I have not read. That one day I might read. But I just I I that's like um dudes. Let, let, let's say the average book is eighty thousand words. Just just on average, right? cuz I average. That is nine books nine books. Now I have written a lot of words. I'm not gonna lie. But to have one fic be that long is a little crazy is a little crazy pants. Little crazy pants. It's a, it's a, it's a lot to ask of a reader. <laughs> and I'm a wordy bitch. I'll be the first one to admit that. But that's a little much to ask. Wow! Called you're an idiot, Harry. (laughs) In the next seven, in the next seven years, you're gonna be fucked up. (laughs) That's like a letter from the future. (laughs) This is all gonna suck. You're gonna you're gonna make so many choices that you regret. (laughs) I sympathetic magic. She-dock. I like she-dock. Um, but I'm not ashamed of liking her work. I'm ashamed of the fact that I like the Harry the Harry and Ron in that fic. And it just makes me because I hate Ron. <laughs> He's a terrible character. He's just a little asshole, a little selfish, jealous, spiteful asshole, and I just no. No, but again, I read I read sympathetic magic once a year, and it is what it is. <laughs> I don't like Jenny either, but I can take or leave Jenny. I hate Ron. Disloyalty is so obscene. I just, I can't. I can't. Ugh! Just just mad. Just mad. But really, in canon, Jenny Ginny is just a nuisance in canon. I mean, she's she's a Mary Sue in in book six. She's not entity in book seven. She's just not um, she's not really there enough to, to matter. Ron is a problem, practically from the first book. He's he's jealous. He's spiteful. He's a bully. He's rude. He's um, it's just. Ugh. Just, no, there's just not a. Mm. Would I write the twins in a triad? Not personally, but as would <laughs> Azure. Are you here? Um, I no, not personally. I um, I wouldn't write brothers with the same partner. Um, a line for me. Um, I'm about to get very explicit. Okay, so here's the thing. I once read a book. And it was two brothers sharing a, a woman, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna read this, and it'll, it'll, it'll be fine. It won't be a problem. Um, I did mention them as a background pairing with another woman, but I would never write it as anything. No, I wouldn't. Um, in blank space, they have
2: the,
1: they're married to the same woman. Um, but I wouldn't write it. I wouldn't write the actual explicit content of them together. That Yeah, they're both married to Katie Bell. Um I'll tell you why. I read a book. And these brothers were sharing um, a woman. Okay, that's fine, um, I thought. But here's the thing. She actually was the filling of a brother's sandwich. And let me tell you some logistics, folks. It's going to be explicit for the next minute and a half when one penis is in the vaginal canal and the other penis is in the anus and the three of them are in a prone position that means you've got a brother on top a woman in the middle and a brother on bottom right so you've got a dick in each hole that's fine What's not fine is that during this vigorous sex act that all three of these people are participating in, there's going to be a lot of testicle contact. There will be some ball slapping. There will be some balls mingling together, smushed together, rubbing each other. T- just it, it's it's. And also, when two dicks are in a woman in the vaginal canal and in the in the anus. They can feel each other. There's not a whole lot of flesh between those two openings. Okay. So, um, they're gonna feel each other moving inside the woman. This is this is the explicitness that I'm talking about, okay? So that is incestuous to me. And so I would never actively write threesome sex um with the twins, the Weasley twins. Um and uh, putting them in a background pairing uh, is is fine in my head, you know, because it kind of amused me to do that. Um, but I would never actually write it on screen because there would be ball slapping. And honestly, unless they're attracted to each other already, wouldn't that kind of literally be a turn off to have your brother's balls on yours? I don't know. I don't have balls, and I only have one brother. But I will ask him how he would feel. Uh, no, I won't, because he would be giving me that crazy ass look that I sometimes get when I called him once and asked him a question about a penis when I was in college. Um, so we, 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 won't, we won't go down that route again. And I'm just saying that there would be too much genital contact between siblings, and it's incest, and so I can't write it. And I only read that once, and I was like, "Oh no, that's just too much. Just too much. There's too much balls touching. There's balls touching. Dan enjoys balls touching. Um, it it wouldn't bother him at all. Um, and he doesn't have a brother, so I'm not sure he would have the experience that mental projection to to experience that. And even then, I don't think he'd mind because he's a freak. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I think you can do a pair, a a trio where they only have sex in pairs, but that's also actually kind of unrealistic if they're all three having sex with each other. Like, if they're only having sex with the woman, if two men are sharing a woman and they're only having sex with her, yeah, that makes sense that they wouldn't um, necessarily have sex all three together. But I think realistically, it's not very realistic to think that um, there wouldn't be some eventual dick-touching. Or testicle touching. Um, I think that, you know, honestly, as a woman, the best part of having two men would be that double penetration. Why else would you need them? <laughs> what else are they good for? <laughs> two men. That's twice the hassle. That's twice the binding of jackets. That's twice as many towels on your floor. That's twice as much dishes in your sink. As twice as much food you're having to make. The only the only upside of this would be is you get twice as much dick. <laughs> just saying. You know, you know. Actually, in my head, in blank space with Katie and the twins, I'm pretty sure their relationship is pretty freaky. I'm just not gonna write it. If I wanted to eat hamburger helper every night, I could have it be a man's job in my house. So, no. I am thinking about getting some cabbage and doing some fried cabbage and bacon. It'd be so good. Anyways, I'm just saying that if you're going to have two men in your house, um, that really, the two dick thing is one of the things that would be the. I totally think that Hermione should knock George and Fred up. I'm, I am 100% on this train as. Congratulations. I, I probably won't read it, but I'm 100% behind it. I support you, your perversions. Any advice on writing sex? We were talking about that um, briefly on the writer's table. um, And someone mentioned it as being one of their skills they wanted to work on this year. I think that when it comes to writing sex, that you need to treat it. um, Sex is like a dance. Um, And you don't, Unless you're purposely writing bad sex for your characters as for, a, for a, a moment of growth or just, you know, humor, um, you want your, your, your sex scene to be emotionally satisfying um, and as graphic as you're comfortable with. Um, and don't be as graphic as you think you should be. Be as graphic as you are comfortable with. And if you can't use the word cock, don't use it. If you don't want to write sex, don't, if you want to write sex um practice and watch some porn. One of the worst things i <laughs> If you can't watch the porn, at least read some sex manuals. And I'm being on. I'm being super serious about this because I think Fade to Black is a, is definitely a time honored tradition that you can certainly engage in. I think one of the best stories on my side is courting Hermione Granger, and there's not a bit of sex in it. But I think that if you are Unfamiliar with the mechanics, that so it is important that you watch porn because there is nothing more off-putting than reading characters doing shit that's impossible. Do we need to get that fic out, or the one man put his penis in another man's penis? Because that's how the writer assumed they had sex. That's not how men have sex. <laughs> Now, there is a thing called docking where where a man can pull his foreskin over the head of another man's penis. Um, and that is not intercourse. That's, you know, um, it, and really, it only works with men who have not been circumcised. Um, and yet you, you want to use lube. Um you know, if someone actually asked me to do a sex talk on my podcast, and I'm going to talk Jillian to doing it with me. It'll it'll be fun because she's hilarious um, when it comes to shit like that. But if you um if you aren't sure about a sex act and how it should take place, and you don't want to watch porn, take yourself over to the writer's table and ask a question because there's every reason to believe that at least one person in the chat room, I mean in the group, has done the thing that you're asking about unless you are asking about something really creeptastic like snuff or um pedophilia and then you know i will I'll, I'll kick your ass out of my group but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna have that um <clears throat> I think that um yeah watching porn to your is is to your benefit um because if you don't if you're not familiar with uh the mechanics of a sexual position, watching it is the best way to learn it and now when it comes to riding sex um keep your language as real as possible. Avoid flowery terms, purple prose. Uh, If you can't use the word cock, use the word erection. Um, Avoid clinical terms like vulva and penis because they're not particularly sexy. but we, we 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 did talk one night about different terms for um the cock and it was like cocks are big, dicks are little and pricks are british.
0: <laughs>
1: so, but you don't want to um you also need to keep in mind your characters because in with some characters coarse language has a has more impact than, um, than not. Um, one of the reasons why there is not a sex scene in courting Hermione Granger is that it didn't fit the narrative. It was, um, well, I wrote it. I did write a sex scene for courting Hermione Granger, but It was awkward and terrible, and I was like, and see, the thing is, is I actually consider writing sex one of my better skills, and for me to write a terrible, awkward sex scene, and I was like, why, why does this, why is this so terrible, why does this suck, why does, why does this look like I wrote it when I was 12, what is wrong with me, but it wasn't, it was that it wasn't the right place, turgid sounds Swollen and rotten. Actually, I hate the word "turgid." It's so ugly because it really didn't fit the narrative and it didn't fit the characterization. Um, Hermione is a very uh, innocent and um, kind of sheltered young woman in courting Hermione Granger, and Harry's very invested in in protecting her. And so, writing that scene from either point of view seemed invasive and weird so i pulled it out and it read so much better without it it just it just was not in the right place and so knowing the right place to put a sex scene and knowing when not to have a sex scene is also a skill that you will learn in time Um, and the only thing you can do is practice 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 um but uh you want um Have dialogue in your sex scene to um, have a little bit of dialogue to to break up the description you um don't don't be that person who who um tries to uh to put the noises that people have um or experience during sex in your dialogue. No O's and moans. Don't try to phonically spell out moans. Just don't do that. It's really um, amusing. But it's not sexy. That's not how you spell cauldron. I'm just saying. Um. Like that whole weighing of the wand scene in the original Goblet of Fire. Was it one big dick joke? Seriously? Gary does it again. It is one big dick joke. It is just was just ridiculous. <sighs> Tell them to polish their wands it what <laughs> <sighs> anyways. Um um but when it comes to writing sex, you, you want to make, to make it natural and intimate and to serve your plot and your characterization. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that there are some relationships that you create where your characters will make love and there are others where they're fucking. If you look at the, um, the sex in her secret that I wrote, um, progresses through the story, uh, as they learn about each other and her, um after her, her after her secret is ex, ex, um exposed uh and you look at the sex in harry potter and the soulmate bond it's um it's very intimate and very pleasure driven and it's soft and and sweet um you look at the sex in um what lovers do it's just not outside the BDSM elements it's really rough and kind of hard, and they're both really um, kind of desperate for it. So, and it's the same set of characters over and over again in different situations. You don't want to write the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. You don't want to get in a rut, but also you need to keep in mind that sex is a human experience, and it should be um, it should be intimate. It should be raw. It should be real. It should be um, the most truthful thing that your characters do together, the most honest thing they do, um, and uh, even, um, even when it's awkward, it should be honest. crack where Ron wants to invite Cedric and Victor to polish their wands together is Harry Potter and the Champion's Champion which is fucking hilarious. If you've not read it, you need to read it. Um, But yeah. So so sex should just be an intimate dance. Whether it is rough and ready or um, slow and easy or whether you're making love, whether you're fucking, you know, it should be a um, very honest exchange of, of pleasure between your characters. And the only way you'll get good at it is to write it. Do it, do it, do it. The more you write it, the better you will be. Weasley's Wonder Wank Wands. I think I'll just be um, a section in their store. I'm not even sure they would bother with a separate storefront. There's a game where you replace the word wand with the word dick in Harry Potter. So every time you see the word wand, you are supposed to use the word dick. I, I'm not saying I've played that game, but it sounds particularly amusing. <laughs> Love potions. Um, we got about 15 minutes, yes? Uh, we absolutely can't talk about love potions. I would say that love potions um, in Harry Potter is treated like a joke. Um, it's treated like an amusement. Something that's funny, but it's not funny. Um, Hermione gave her dick a swish and a flick. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> it.
1: The the thing is is that um the first like we we first get introduced to the idea of love potions um it's treated like kind of like a joke like it's something that's supposed to be funny because Ron's been dosed with a with a love potion um that that was meant for Harry and the person who did it is never um you don't ever see any kind of um reprimand and then you know there's Molly talking about um giving Arthur a love potion at Hogwarts to make him notice her um. um is being dismissed or rug swept as something amusing or cute or whatever. And it's not, it's, it's rape. Um, and I think that fandom, um, is actually very good for pointing out that this, this kind of thing, um, that, that potions are rape. And, um, so I really appreciate that part in fandom where they're acknowledging that, um, that potions, uh, it is more. It is more insidious than than hypnol or uh, any other kind of date rape drug, where a person is incapacitated. Because love potions not only um, cause physical rape, but they cause emotional and mental rape as well. Um, and I think in Harry's case, if he was, uh, if he was, if he was, it would be the the death stick, which is a dick joke all in itself. The death stick. well, we aren't sure that she stopped dosing him we're talking about Molly and Arthur but uh and that's a that's a common trope in fandom that she actually has been dosing him the whole time um and um so i like to see um in fandom where, where, where potions abuse is treated seriously and it is treated with um, all the gravity that it should be treated with because it is it is a terrible thing to do to somebody. Harry is in uh, see, See, Claire? Corner. Get in the corner. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Harry's relationship with Ginny because there was no real foundation for it and because Harry was so emotionally dumb, um, that he couldn't articulate what he was feeling for her, in the, and we're getting that chest monster thing. It does read like that it was um, love potions or a lust potion or something that she, that that she dosed him. I read a fic where Molly dosed Arthur because they were soulmates. That um, because he was the soulmate of somebody else, and she. She dosed him for years upon years. And then when it came out, it came out that he was actually Amelia Bones' soulmate. And that's why she had never married. I wonder why nobody gave Snape Viet for men. Good, let's just be honest. I want you to know that when I read that thing, the the Beat for Men review from the UK Amazon, I laughed so hard I could barely read it out to my husband. I was reading it to my husband. I was wheezing. I I, I was I couldn't. I I cried. I laughed so hard I cried. The Brussels sprout part. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I do. But but when it comes to the potions thing, um, that uh, seeing it treated with uh, with with seriousness and fandom is is very validating because it is terrible and it's horrifying. When I read it in the book, I was horrified. I was like, and this is not funny. This is not this is not even remotely funny. Although honestly. To be perfectly frank, even though I make this joke myself, there really isn't anything funny about Aberforth Dumbledore and his ghost. <laughs> Bestiality is not funny. <laughs> As I laugh my ass off. No, really, it's not. It's it, it's not funny. It's terrible. <laughs> I feel sorry for the goat, too. The goat needs to be rescued. Up with that. Oh, Umbridge and the Centaurs. Yes, because I I think it was glossed over um, in the book. It was never really, I mean, she came back all roughed up and and dirty and, and muttering to herself. But it needs to be said that in mythology, when centaurs kidnapped human women, they raped them. Tone there that's ugly. And as much as I hate Umbridge, I would wish death on her before I would wish that on her. Gang raped by Centaur? Really? Yeah, that's the thing. Have you seen the horse stick? Right? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it is terrible. Um, And that's not said in the book. In the book, um, when Dumbledore goes to rescue her, she's just a hot mess and she's petrified. um, And she's still wearing all of her clothes and everything. So there's not an implication that she actually was sexually assaulted by the centaur. But in mythology, that's what happened. And that is the undertone. Animagus trapped in a goat form, would it still be bestiality? It would depend, according to Jilly, on whether or not the goat maintained his human um, mental abilities. Because if the goat is sapient, then it wouldn't be bestiality. Uh, well, I guess, but um, if the goat isn't given permission, it, it it would be goat rape. I Can we get can Deeply regret bringing up the goats. (laughs) Well, if he didn't know it was a person, then he wouldn't be asking for permission, and then it was still bestiality. (sighs) Anyways, let's 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 move beyond the goats. I I regret bringing it up. I but it it still was not particularly appropriate to have a a young a young. um, a YA novel, um, but there were lots of things in Harry Potter that probably shouldn't have been. <laughs> it was like, whoa, yo, know, but the kids actually didn't get that shit until later, you know. Um, oh, come on, Ellie, get in the corner, in the corner with Claire. <sighs> I <sighs> I think she likes being in the corner.
0: <clears throat>
1: Anyways. Um. <laughs> What's a goat rope? I don't think a goat rope is actually that. I think a goat rope is something else. Isn't a goat rope like a fucked, a clusterfuck or something that's just fucked up? It's, that's a total goat rope. It's like, you know. A bad thing, a bad idea in that like, military slang. I think the goat is wearing braces. Okay, yeah. Somewhere in my audience, there's someone who knows the origin of goat rope. And you're already considering writing me an email to let me know. And I don't want to know. I am content not knowing the origin of goat rope because I'm very worried, and I don't want to be exposed to the origin. Thank you, thank you so much for your consideration, and not writing me that email. (laughs) Love potions and goats, Um, but oh, for fuck's sake, Edie! How are you Googling when you're in the corner? A goat rope, a confusing, disorganized situation often attributed to or marked by human error. Slang, a convoluted issue that is contested by many parties. A rodeo event in which competitors attempt to lasso a goat, usually for younger participants. Let's just say that the whole Aberforth situation is definitely a goat rope and and move on. Move on from there. Let's move on. We got four minutes left. Goats. Although I did watch a video the other day of goats in pajamas that was fucking adorable. If there is anything cuter cuter than goats in pajamas, I don't know what it is. Baby goats in pajamas. Cutest damn thing ever. I also watched a bunch of idiots today on YouTube swimming with a fucking great white... As long as a giraffe is tall. Okay, my shark? Mind you, they saw the shark, then they got in the water. It wasn't like they were in the water and the shark came up. They got in the fucking water with this 20 foot plus shark and swam around with it like it was a dolphin. 20 feet long, 8 feet wide, high circumference, whatever, they are fucking swimming with it like it was a dolphin. And they were even petting it. So I had to watch that goat um, video again after that because I was just like, what? That's not what? No. 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 This thing was ginormous. I, it was ginormous. And I, this thing was like 50 years old, something like that, 50, 60 years old. Ginormous. Yeah, yeah, it had been eating a dead whale. So I guess it was full and that made it okay to swim with it. I don't know. Um, dumb. Baby goats are cute. Baby donkeys look a little crazy. Only an idiot would take a selfie with a shark. That that's all I'm going to say. Idiot. You're asking for trouble. Anyways, <clears throat> we're down to 2 minutes and um I think it was actually as big as the Jaws was supposed to be. See how cute baby goats are in pajamas? If you've not seen baby goats in pajamas, look it up. It is fucking adorable. You guys have a great weekend. And thank you for joining me. And thank you for asking questions and listening to me talk for two hours. I super appreciate you. Have a good evening.